Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are recording, as always, at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, as this is a Meltdown Comics production in, um, in partnership with La Luz de Jesus Gallery and the Pop Sequentialism uh, comic book blog. So uh, last week, um, we took a little break for uh, the holidays, and uh, we're back, uh, so we're really only off for, uh, for one, one week during the Christmas and New Year's break. And I uh, trust that everybody had a blast. And I think one thing we've been striving for with this podcast is to make sure that no matter when you find it, no matter when you tune in, um, it's still topical. It's not too um, married to a specific place and time. And so while I think a lot of people have an inclination to do a show based on the best of 2015 or the best of whatever year they're going to, they're covering, um, or to do a roundup or a top 10, I thought it might be a little bit more interesting to take some information about the year that has just passed and use that as a springboard to talk about marketing and how motion pictures um, make their money and and how it can be sort of deceptive when a film makes a lot of money, what the actual um, benefit is to all involved. And so um, I think what I'm going to start with here is a discussion about the all-time highest budgeted films. So... As we are leaving 2015, and we are now in 2016, um, if you haven't seen what the 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 highest money making films of the past year were, you may be surprised to know the order of them. And I'm sure that these numbers are going to be subject to change since a new Star Wars film just opened about two and a half weeks ago, and it's already number three for uh, 2015's um, annual take. But the number one box office gross of 2015 was Jurassic World, and it made. billion, that's billion with a B, dollars worldwide. And about $652 million was earned in the U.S., with the rest of it being earned overseas. And so when you look at world war, uh, world, uh, worldwide gross, um, if you pay attention to these numbers at places like Box Office Mojo or um, other places like MovieLine that may post this information, um, understand that that's the amount of money that was taken in you know, at the counter for the ticket. That doesn't include, that's not the um, the net, that's not how much money the studios made. And it's kind of hard to determine um, how much of that gross actually goes to the production because different movies and different studios have different deals with um, exhibition theater owners. So that the first week and why there's such a big push by the, the film companies to get you into the opening week box office um when a film opens is because 
those deals are generally favorable to the studios, sometimes up to 90%, so that 90% of the ticket price will go to the studio in the opening week. And the following week, that may drop as much as 50%. So um, the constant push, why you always see the opening date number on a movie poster, on a bus bench, on a television spot, usually if they've got their date locked, uh, is to get you into that theater that opening week so that the company that produced it can get the biggest um, benefit back on the exhibition. And the longer a film plays, the more beneficial it is to the theater owner, the less beneficial it is to the production company. And so... um, I'm going to run through this list a little bit, and I'm also going to talk about how many weeks it took for these films to earn this and do a little bit of a comparison. And I think why it's important to do this is because what we've also been trying to do is to lift the veil between, um, you know, the professionals and people like you, people like me. You know, I, I started reading comic books when I was young. I'm a fan. I'm still a fan. And it's been important to me to be able to kind of educate people like me who didn't have access to this type of information um, so that they know um, you know, why certain decisions sometimes get made. And a lot of that is connected to numbers. And while numbers may be boring to some, I, I can guarantee you this is going to be pretty exciting because you're probably going to learn some things here that you really didn't know about. So um, really quickly, top 20 films. Jurassic World, number one, uh, $1.669 billion, uh, spent 23 weeks to earn that. Um, it was budgeted $215 million. Furious 7 um, made about a, a billion and a half dollars um, worldwide, uh, $353 million of which was made in the U.S. It, it did it in about 16 weeks. Um, a little less than a fourth of that total was made in the U.S. The budget was $190 million. Uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens budgeted $200 million. Um, already in two and a half weeks, it's made um, $1.5 billion worldwide, already made $742 million in the United States. Um, it's probably going to reach the number two position of all time um, very quickly. It may overtake Avatar, although that's a pretty difficult um, number to hit because Avatar's worldwide gross is $2,783,918,900. Um and considering the runtime on Avatar, that that was an amazing feat. Um, it, they did a great marketing campaign where they um, pushed people towards seeing a three D screening because of the environment that was created. You really did have to experience that in a theater. It's not something you could experience at home. So, number four, Avengers: Age of Ultron, uh, one point four billion uh, worldwide gross, um, made about four hundred fifty nine million in the U S., which is about a third of its total take. Uh, it did that in 23 weeks. Um, its budget was $250 million, which makes it the highest budgeted film of the past year. Um, and so not quite as successful as perhaps some films that cost quite a bit less that made only um, slightly less. Um, a big hit for the studios would be Minions, which made $1.157 billion, um, $336 million of which was in the U.S., um, quite a bit less than a third of its worldwide take. It did so in 23 weeks, but it only cost $74 million. Now, as I, I um, may have hinted at, and I'll, I'll reiterate, and I'm, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I think it's worth repeating, none of these numbers reflects the marketing budget. So if you're, you've seen a budget of $74 million on a film like Minions, understand that in excess of $100 million, so more than the budget of the production of the film, went into the marketing of the film. 
So they stopped reporting uh, what's called the um, the P&A numbers, which is the um, print and advertisement um, costs to the MPAA a few years ago. But uh, but we do have data from before then, and it helps us to kind of flesh out how this works. But um, Spectre, the Bond film, is still playing in theaters. Um, it has thus far made $864.8 million, um, a little less than $200 million of it in the U.S., so about a little less than a quarter of its worldwide take in only eight and a half weeks um, at a budget of $245 million, so the second most expensive production of the year. Um, also has um, a pretty beefy running time, so those numbers are impressive because that means the longer a film is, the less times you can show it daily, which means the less um, ticket sales overall um, and usually means um, less, um, well, definitely less exhibitions per day, but probably less people per theater. Uh, and so it, it it can hurt the overall take, and that's why most studios like to have films that are under two hours, and they've always considered the sweet spot to be about an hour and a half. So comedies very rarely go over an hour and a half. Sometimes they clock in at about uh, an hour, uh, 80 minutes or so. But uh, Inside Out follows Spectre, Mission Impossible Rogue Nations after that, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, and rounding up the top 10 is The Martian, which um, grossed $596.3 million in 13 and a half weeks. It's still in theaters. Um, it's probably now still going to have a couple more weeks left on the, on the secondary theater market. Um, will probably close out around 17 or 18 weeks. Um, and one of the things you, you may be hearing as I say these weeks, a, a common number is 23 weeks. 23 weeks is the average successful running time for... Um, a Hollywood studio picture that after 23 weeks, unless it's really making money, the um, the studio uh, the theaters generally pull them to try and make room for new movies, and um, it's when the the person per theater average starts to slip below 10 is when they start thinking about pulling these things, and um, so what's going to be kind of important to realize is that the 11th biggest money making film of the year is Fifty Shades of Grey, a film that was completely reviled by critics. Um, even fans of the book seem to really not enjoy the movie very much, but it still made $570.5 million uh, in the box office, and it did so in an astounding 13 weeks. And that was its complete run. It was seen as a seasonal release, um, timed for Valentine's Day. It got about a three-month um, release schedule, and uh, then it was out, and it was budgeted only $40 million. Again, the marketing budget was probably somewhere between uh, 40 and $100 million, but when you realize that all the films are spending at least $100 million on marketing, that makes a $40 million um, production that grosses $570 million a very attractive option and um, the kind of thing that gets you know young producers promoted to studio heads. And... Um, the, the following film, Cinderella, number 12 on the list, a Disney film, uh, grossed $542.7 million worldwide in that year um, in 27 weeks. Um, and it made almost 40% of its money in the U.S., but it only cost $95 million, so it's considered a very successful movie. One thing you'll notice is that if a film has a weekly total that goes past 23 weeks, you can almost guarantee it is a Disney or Pixar film. And I think that has something to do with the deals that Disney strikes with the theaters that rent the films, um, which uh, has a lower um, 
attendant per screening uh, threshold that has to uh, it has to drop below before the theater is allowed to pull it out to replace it. Um, that has helped the Disney brand overall, and um, seems to be specifically for um, in-house Disney or DreamWorks productions. So the Marvel films almost always still tend to cap out at 23 weeks. So um, Ant-Man, speaking of Marvel, um, again is number 13 on the list. It made $519.3 million. Um, budgeted $130 million makes it one of the lesser expensive Marvel films. Um, and making its money in, in 22 weeks. So um, has a pretty good full run, um, pretty successful. And then as you go down the list, you have San Andreas, Hotel Transylvania 2, Terminator Genesis, Kingsman, The Secret Service, which um, is considered, uh, I believe, an independent film, actually. Uh, made $414.4 million. Um, did so in 21 weeks. Um, made about a third of its money in the U.S., so it did really well overseas. Only cost $81 million. Um, I really enjoyed that movie. Um, Home, the animated film, follows that. Mad Max Fury Road is after that, and Taken 3 rounds up the top 20. Now, Mad Max Fury Road has been considered... um, It's been winning a ton of awards from um, the film critics, from um, organizations that give out awards and prizes. It's it's probably going to wind up getting an Oscar nomination. It's going to get... um, I think it's gotten some Golden Globe uh, noms, or it will. And... um, when you look at the numbers, they're not as um, enticing as some of the numbers at the top. Sure, it made $375.8 million worldwide, but it cost $150 million to make. So um, its U.S. gross was only $3.6 million more than the budget, which means that all the profit was overseas, and that still doesn't account for the marketing budget. Um, but it was still considered successful enough to warrant a sequel, um, it got people excited about that the Mad Max brand again. If you haven't seen it, I, I can't recommend highly enough that you do go see it. I loved it. Um, it's, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest action film um, ever shot. It's relentless. It's an amazing car chase film. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, first guest on the program for Pod Sequentialism was Brendan McCarthy, who um, co-wrote the script and helped develop the ideas with, uh, with the director, George Miller. And... Um, you know, it, it couldn't have happened for a nicer bunch of guys. It should have made ten times the amount of money that it did, and I'm sure it's going to find a really big life on um, on home video and, and on cable television. And and by the time they get around to making the sequel, I'm sure it will have a huge boost in um, in worldwide gross. Now I'm going to take a little quick break here for uh, a little bit of a sponsorship, but um, when I get back, I'm going to get into the brass tacks of um, why. The shielding of this marketing information um, is is sort of a um, important thing to be aware of, and if you think we've gone too far afield from comics, this is all going to come back around. So I, I I appreciate your patience and your indulgence, and I look forward to talking to you in just a few more minutes right here on the Pod Sequentialism podcast here at Meltdown Comics. I am of course Matt Kennedy, uh, speaking to you um, in just a few moments from our sponsors. Melt you. The school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. 
recording live, of course, here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. If you hear any kind of crazy noises in the background, it's because Hollywood is actually burning to the ground. So um, pay no mind. Well, um, as we were talking about um, box office grosses and throwing a lot of big numbers around, and I, I hope that you don't find this type of thing uh, too boring, but it's important because a lot of times, and we hear this a lot, if you've, if you've walked in a comic book store in your life, you have probably inevitably overheard somebody talking to someone behind the counter about, hey, how come this comic hasn't been made into a movie? Or, hey, you know, um, so-and-so, whatever studio really didn't know how to market this movie, or I really wish that so-and-so was in this film. And when you start to break down the numbers, it starts to make sense on at least a statistical level which then carries down into fandom. And it's something that fans need to be aware of because fan support can cause a rally and it can cause numbers to change and it can cause the perception of a particular property's value, whether it's Superman or, you know, um, Chicken Man. It's, it's got a real connection to what kind of numbers are, are perceived even more so than what the numbers are and that's why uh, knowing marketing numbers is so, so important. So I'm going to recap a little bit of what we just covered. The number one film of 2015, Jurassic World, um, with um, a, a worldwide box office gross of $1.669 billion and a budget of $215 million, is number 22 on the all-time highest budget list. Um, as of yet, it has not eclipsed the um, top 20, I think, of um, all-time box office uh, champions. So while it is on the um, number 22 on the highest budget, I think it's also close to number 22 on the all-time box office gross. So I started digging into some of these numbers, and I want to thank Pamela McClintock over at The Hollywood Reporter for, um, for getting some of this information out there and making it easy to find. But what I also discovered is that there are, at this point in time, uh, at the beginning of 2016, at least 50 movies since 1997's Titanic, which set the record for the um, highest budget, that have cost $200 million or more to make. And after doing a little bit more research, I realized that all of them earned a worldwide gross of $200 million or more. So that's a formula that studios pay attention to. It says to them in very basic terms that if we spend $200 million on a movie, we are guaranteed to make at least $200 million back. And while that sounds like a wash, and actually it's it's probably a slight loss, it means that there's more risk in making a movie for $50 million because that movie is not guaranteed to make even $5 million when you crunch all the numbers. Whereas the more money you spend the more money you make in its thus far a proven formula. And there's a couple of cases, like um, 2012's John Carter, that took in just a little bit more than it cost to make. But um, again, when you consider marketing and other below-the-line costs, um, it does lose money. But since those numbers aren't broadcast, it creates a sort of illusion of success that helps to promote and maybe falsely, this this idea that very expensive movies are a safer bet than less expensive movies. And I think, as someone who did work in, in motion picture marketing myself, that I started to see in the early 2000s a trend um, that would either support very inexpensive independent films that cost between $1 and $10 million that could be marketed uh, inexpensively in art house theaters, in local newspapers, 
before the local newspaper started to disappear, um, that they would be a pretty safe bet. You wouldn't lose too much money if you lost money, and if you made money, you could make a fortune. And the example that became the high-water mark, if you will, in genre was the Blair Witch Project, which cost, I think, $40,000 to make and made something like $175 million. And then um, slightly more expensive, slicker productions like My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which um, was relatively inexpensive, costing below $10 million and making something like $220 million. Um, and I'd have to dig into those numbers again. I don't have them in front of me. But um, that was the idea of thinking in the early 2000s. And as big box retailers started to go away, the idea that a film could recoup what it didn't make on its theatrical release on DVD also started to go away, which then pushed the chasm between the low-budget and the high-budget films further apart. Because already in the early 2000s, with um, a handful of films costing over $200 million, those films were all incredibly, wildly successful. Not marginally, but ridiculously successful. So if you look at a film, say... Spider-Man 2 from 2004 with a budget of $200 million. That film winds up taking in $783 million um, you know, worldwide, which was huge. Um, and understand that the first movie to pull in a billion bucks was um, Avatar, and it continued to keep on. It took in another, million, another billion and then almost another billion. And so it's not until 2009 that um, billion-dollar box office became a regular thing. It was, it was still pretty groundbreaking. Now, the recent Lone Ranger movie had a budget of $275 million, but it grossed only $89 million domestically of a $260 million worldwide gross, and um, it's the only film that cost more than $200 million to lose money before counting the marketing budget. The only one. So it fell $15 million short worldwide of its initial production budget and that's a film from 2014 so again you know you're looking at a list of almost 25 films you're talking about a five percent chance of failure if you spend at least 200 million dollars to make it so that's why there's been so much interest in superhero films two reasons genre films are are costly they're costly because you have to have seamless special effects to get the audience that you need engaged. Um, obviously, we've been spoiled by video games. The, um, the graphics in video games have been getting better and better and better um, to the point that uh, there are sequences in video games in the playability mode that do look like motion pictures. Um, that's getting more and more common, um, less uncommon, and that level of sophistication is built on a different um marketing plan and a different cost proposal so developing video games um, often you can change the branding of a game while it's still in production less than three months out from street date so the options in a video game are much different than the options in a, in a narrative film but the um, the important thing to remember about superhero movies is that they too have a built-in audience now where things get a little tricky is that in the past, oh, 10, 15 years, as the publishing numbers have started to really, really drop, the brand value now is almost one 
of a reverse nature that um, you're either buying and investing and rebooting classic characters whose comics already existed in the era where publication numbers were in the millions or you're selling your comic at the same time you're selling the movie. So if you've developed characters, you've already got an agent who is probably seeing the product before the first issue hits the newsstands or the, in, in the case now, the comic book shops. And there'll be, you've probably had meetings with a, a number of executives or lawyers or, um, or production people that will have ideas um, about what your project is going to become in its second life. So not the initial comic book, but the film that it's going to become. And with things streeting at the exact same time, it's a gamble on both ends. And so you don't have a legitimate established character from which to develop um, a secondary market like motion picture. So if you go back, as I said, the, the MPAA no longer has access to um, the, the, the P&A costs, the, the marketing costs. But we do know that in 1980, the average cost of marketing a studio movie and that's just in the U.S., was $4.3 million. So if you adjust that number for inflation, you're looking at $12.5 million in 2015 money. But by 2007, so halfway, you know, well, not halfway, but uh, just about eight years ago, that budget had skyrocketed to almost $36 million, and that's the average cost of marketing a studio movie. So there were... For your blockbusters, they're guaranteed to be spending more. And um, some of your independents, of course, don't have those types of budgets, but most studio budgets are falling on that number. So a film can cost $10 million. They're still putting $40 million into the marketing campaign. Now, if you track that rate of inflation from 2007 to 2015, and if the costs themselves haven't increased, and they have, um, it would be north already of $40 million for a middle-of-the-road film. And we're talking about movies like The Fault in Our Stars or a comedy like Tammy. So for a film like Ant-Man, you have to assume that the marketing budget is equal to the production budget of $130 million. Now with a partner like Marvel uh, and Disney owning um, both the Marvel Entertainment brand and the um, Marvel Comic Book Enterprise you have what you might call a instant partner in that you have a means of advertising directly to the client that already helped build that character into something to begin with. So while these there are budgets within the company allocated to advertising, some of that money goes back into another division of that same company. So the stock itself is not affected by some portion of that marketing budget. And um, that may have sounded a little confusing, so I'm going to give you a little bit of an example. So we'll take Ant-Man. Ant-Man has its production budget of $130 million, and we'll assume that it has a advertising budget of $130 million as well. So let's say that the back of a Marvel comic book um, charges, oh, I'd guess $10,000 um, for an advertiser to use that that back cover. So Marvel could choose to use a Marvel comic book as a means of advertising Ant-Man, which would then accrue a deficit of $10,000 to their ad budget. But in the grand scheme of things, that money never leaves the company. 
it goes from one department in the company to another department in the company and it does leave one bank account and go into another bank account but the stock for Disney will be completely unaffected um, only in as much that they now get to write off for one division a loss um, while writing off a profit of the exact same amount on another division of the company so the stock stays exactly the same so do they get a cheat in a way of being able to spend their money in a way that other people can't? And is I mean, it is a conglomerate at this point. By having access to multiple formats um, and having a, um, a larger than probably fair market share, is it safe to say that um, a company like Disney is unfairly in control of the entertainment market? And certainly when fans heard that Disney was going to be buying Marvel, there was a lot of hullabaloo and there was a lot of speculation about whether that was going to be a good or a bad thing. Well, if you're a fan of, of Marvel movies, it was definitely a good thing. Um, having Disney come in and take over the franchises of the Marvel um, Studios films proved to be a very good thing. The movies got better. And their understanding of, of the marketplace meant that the marketing spend was done more intelligently with a more informed track record. And uh, Kevin Feige, who runs uh, Marvel Studios, is a marketing genius who also knows story. And uh, having known several directors who have worked under his tutelage um, and under his production, all of them have had invariably only good things to say about him. So it's good to have an executive in charge who loves the product. But um, as how that relates to a company being a conglomerate, that's bad for everybody else if they are benefiting unfairly from having that much power. And, um, you know, of course, there used to be laws in place that would prevent anybody from having um, too much power in the marketplace. And, you know, that went away, not only with things like the Glass-Steagall Act, which I you can look up if you want to, um, which uh, allowed um, speculation in stock to um, reach higher levels than was previously allowed and allowed uh, certain companies to become larger than, than would be advisable for um, not only the stock holders of that company, but for anybody affected by the collapse of a company that size. We saw that happen in 2007, 2008, and the big collapse in the United States had seen a little bit before that in the collapse of Iceland. But um, not to get too nerdy about the numbers there, um, it becomes an issue if you have, let's say, an independent um, superhero movie or um, a less uh, studio-branded film. And you can use Kingsman as an example. Kingsman is indeed adapted from a comic book. Um, it was the type of fan-favorite comic book because the writer connected to it, but um, not of a brand name even remotely in the universe of being a Spider-Man, an Avengers, a Captain America, an X-Men, or um, you know any like major uh, Marvel character or DC character for that matter. And um, But word of mouth and quality of filmmaking helped push that movie into a place where it pulled down $414.4 million and only cost $81 million to make. But a lot of people didn't see that movie because it wasn't a Disney movie and because there was no deal that the studio that owned that product could make that would guarantee that it stayed in a the theater for a certain amount of time. Um, because they didn't have another product that everybody was looking forward to enough that they could then threaten to take away. Certainly, if you control the Star Wars franchise, the Disney princesses, and um, 
you know, your Marvel superheroes, you have a lot of leverage when it comes to getting theaters to do what you want. And um, that may mean locking up theaters that might otherwise be available to other independent films. So if you have a gripe about uh, a product, uh, a project that you like, a comic book that you love to read not being made into a film, if you're not writing letters to um, to companies that are in a position to make movies out of those projects, then um, odds are it's not going to happen and there have to be a whole lot of you because the numbers don't lie to the studio executives. And they're not seeing the whole picture, clearly, but um, they're seeing a picture which keeps them employed and that seems to be the number one um, concern of, of people in the entertainment business. So I, I checked with a couple of... Um, execs that I know and, and people that some people that I may have um, not necessarily worked with directly in the past but people that I'd come into contact in previous jobs um, in motion picture marketing and I, I asked them questions about this uh, a couple of articles that I came across in researching this topic and all of them invariably confirmed that big genre movies are spending over a hundred million dollars for print and advertising and an example that I think Pamela McClintock used in her Hollywood Reporter article was that uh, Transformers Age of Extinction became the highest grossing film of all time in China. So it's an English language film and it hits the highest grossing position in China in just three weeks, earning $300 million. Um, and they only spent 3 to $5 million to market it in China because China has very specific laws against advertising non-Chinese product. But um, if you've seen the film, you know that portions of it were shot in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And those scenes are um, very visibly those cities. And so um, it may have had a, a more familiar aspect to the Chinese than perhaps other um, American product. It was not a, um, a film that took a, a poor opinion of China. It just happened to be placed in that city. So it wasn't an espionage thriller, which would probably not do well and might not even be capable of release in a country like China. So it's this is an important um, distinction that for only 3 to $5 million, they made $300 million in China, but they had to spend $100 million in North America to make the same amount of money. So in a global economy, it's important to know that what used to be the entire budget eaten up or covered by um, American marketing and uh, American gross, it's now a pretty small piece of the pie except in a handful of examples. And looking back on last year's numbers and seeing that Star Wars The Force Awakens in only two and a half weeks has made um, $1.512 billion. Um, half of that was made in the U.S. because the movie hasn't gone to other countries yet. Um, it didn't open day and date everywhere. There are definitely other countries that it did open on the same day and date, but it's going to be a platform release and it's going to make most of its money overseas. So at this point, just under half was made in the U.S. That number is rapidly going to become eclipsed and the, com the countries that bring the biggest numbers to the table are then going to be targeted and marketed for Star Wars-related product. So movie tie-in toys. I mean, you can't go any place right now without seeing... Force Awakens toys, although it's pretty hard to find um, any toys of the actual lead character of the film. Um, probably worth discussing, I guess, that um, in 
the um, bundle of Star Wars characters that was marketed as a Target exclusive. The main character, a female character, is left out of the set in favor of minor and nameless characters, random stormtroopers, um, that type of thing. Um, there's been a little bit of a hubbub about it. I don't know if that's going to make that toy more valuable or less valuable, probably more. But um, that that might be part of their secondary plan is that the first marketing was going to be towards younger boys and the second wave of marketing was going to be towards girls or that they're holding back the um, the figures of this particular character until the second film where they'll do a bigger push um, waiting to see what characters were most embraced by the public. Um, it's, it's smart marketing to wait and see if you have the luxury of um, the type of money behind it that Lucasfilm, now owned by Disney, has. So um, I hope that hasn't been uh, too much of a a numbers uh, game. I hope your head isn't spinning. But I thought it was really important to mention because we have just, um, we've just left one year and we're going to go into another year. But this information doesn't change. Um, The numbers and the way that numbers work are going to remain consistent. They're going to remain consistent as it um, relates to the accounting and marketing in Hollywood. And that means that's going to affect the marketing, production, and publication numbers on comic books. So um, you're probably going to see a lot more tie-in product related to Star Wars as it becomes more and more popular, just as when the Avengers films took off, you saw more Avengers books and less X-Men books. Um, Marvel was not happy with their partner, who was handling the X-Men films at that time, and they decided to stop using the words mutants and um, um, gifted in um, in their comics because of the way the contract was drafted with their business partner, um, their partners at Fox and Sony. And they decided to pull Fantastic Four comics from the, the marketplace because they were unhappy with their partner in the um, motion picture branches there. Um, worth noting is that the Fantastic Four movie actually made money worldwide. While it was a big fat flop here in the US, I think it might have made um I think it made eighty million. I could be wrong. But um it did make back its budget. And so it's it's funny that we consider films like Waterworld to be these tremendous flops. Waterworld actually made money internationally. It was not well received in the US but um, it, it did make quite a bit of money overseas. It definitely recouped its budget more than once and actually made profit after the marketing. I mean, the, um, there's, there's quite a few films like that that are considered big, big blunders. And when you look at some of the numbers now, I think that, um, like I say, Lone Ranger definitely lost money, and there's, there's just no two ways about it. It did not recover its its gross. Or, I'm sorry, it did not recover in its gross, even the, the production cost. But... Um, one film of 25 at over 200 million. Got to pay attention to that. Well, this is, uh, has been fun talking about this stuff. And I completely encourage you to uh, you know send emails into Meltdown if you've got any questions for me, uh, any topics that you want to see us tackle in the show. I'd be happy to uh, consider it. And uh, next, next show, I guarantee there's going to be a guest. I'm not going to say who. I've got a, a couple of people lined up, and I've got my fingers crossed. I will say that uh, over the holiday break I did uh, did spend some time with James Gunn and um, may have some uh, things to talk about in that front in the next episode so uh, wherever you're listening and whenever you're listening I hope this has been informative and I look forward to getting into your ear again soon again this is Matt Kennedy with Pod Sequentialism here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles <laughs>